Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, welcome back. It's January 22nd, and it's been a good week. We have a new president. It feels a little calmer and quiet and more rational out there, at least for the moment. We also had a very fun chat that's coming up in this podcast with Riley Brennan, the venture investor who both writes a newsletter about the future of transportation and actively invests in it. The Bernie Sanders memes that have endlessly circulated around this week have also kept us laughing. Some of our favorites include Sanders seated on Chicago's L train and the fly on Mike Pence's head. Thank you, Internet. Sometimes we love you so. Now, on to the news. Our first story tonight is a breaking piece coming from the information that centers on Clubhouse, the audio-based social network that last year raised $10 million at a $100 million valuation led by the venture firm Andreessen Horowitz. According to this new report, VCs have approached Clubhouse about investing the company at a new valuation of $1 billion, which is, for you English majors, 10 times its last round. So there's a lot that's interesting here. As some listeners already know, Clubhouse is an invite-only platform that allows you to drop into and participate in live discussions about all kinds of things. If you've had a look around, you know you can drop into conversations about black culture, Silicon Valley, the entertainment and influencer industry, topics that are part of the company's DNA because of its earlier investors and users who are very active on the platform and kind of put an outside stamp on it. As you probably also know, some of those conversations can get contentious with talk about who doesn't get along with whom and why. I was invited pretty belatedly and have only tuned in a few times, including to catch a discussion last weekend that featured the mayors of San Francisco, Austin, and Miami. I didn't catch all of it, but I really enjoyed it. I felt like I'd been transported to a larger venue where I managed to snag a front row seats. You know, there aren't many opportunities to hear the mayors of three cities talking about why their city is better than the others. At the same time, I have popped in and out of other discussions pretty quickly, and I wonder how much time there are now 2 million users actually spend on the platform. My guess is that a very small percentage are power users, which is maybe fine, but whether they can grow a base of power users and whether those power users stick around once people actually have conversations and drinks and socialize again in person is the big question. As for the potential New Deal itself, Andreessen Horowitz would also be leading this new round, according to the information, so it would be presumably marking up its own deal here. In any case, the information did say the deal is not closed, so we'll see. Palantir's stock shot up 25% today to a market cap of $56.7 billion. Shares in the secretive data analytics company have risen a whopping 251% since the company's IPO on September 30th of last year. The trigger for the 25% pop was almost certainly a line in a press release Palantir issued today about its upcoming demo day. In the release, Palantir stated that, quote, in Q4 2020, Apollo managed 150,000-plus upgrades per week across environments, up from 40,000-plus upgrades per week in Q2 2020. In plain English, this means Palantir may have increased its revenues by more than 4x in less than a year. Before the press release today, analysts had been forecasting that Palantir's 2020 sales would be $1.07 billion dollars. This news could increase these estimates substantially. Investors are also happy about a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal with PG&E that Palantir unveiled on Tuesday. Palantir will help the giant California public utility streamline its data management and collection. Palantir has always been known as a secretive company that was in the news for all the wrong reasons. 
Founded in 2003 with seed money from the CIA, it courted controversy by working on big data projects for government agencies, such as the Department of Defense and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Palantir's tools have been used to facilitate ICE raids. It also claimed in its S-1 that other Silicon Valley companies are not as patriotic as Palantir. And last year, CEO Alex Karp said, evidently with pride, our product is used on occasion to kill people. But now it's a new year and a new administration, and although Palantir is still unprofitable, it is making news for the money it's making. And that's the kind of news this market obviously likes. In other news, it's been another big week in SPACs. Just today, we saw the trading debut of the most valuable company to date to go public through a merger with one of these SPACs, 35-year-old Pontiac, Michigan-based United Wholesale Mortgage, which is among the biggest mortgage companies in the U.S. The outfit was valued at a whopping $16 billion when its merger with the blank check outfit Gore's Holdings, a SPAC organized by the private equity firm Gore's Group, was approved earlier this week. It kind of begs the question of what an ideal SPAC candidate really is. UWM, as the mortgage company is known, is a mature company, one that says it generated $1.3 billion in revenue in the third quarter of last year alone. And its CEO, whose father started the company in 1986, said last fall that the company is, quote, massively profitable. That's a story unlike most outfits to go public recently through the SPAC process. Think about Open Door or Luminar Technologies or Virgin Galactic. Each is developing businesses that need capital to keep going and which might not have found much more money from private market investors. SpaceX director Steve Jurvetson underscored the point pretty bluntly last week on this podcast, saying, for example, that Virgin Galactic has seen no positive business development since being taken public. He pointed to the fact that they're trying to develop a hypersonic plane, which has no synergy with the current business they're trying to launch, which is suborbital space flights. In any case, if more profitable, more mature businesses with a very clear path to future revenue begin choosing SPACs over traditional IPOs, it could open up a new world of possibilities and change the perception of these transactions as fly-by-night offers that are going to burn retail investors who don't know better. SPACs could become a bigger thorn in the side of those who might like them to disappear from the scene as quickly as they appeared. Up next, our interview with Riley Brennan, general partner and founder at Trucks Venture Capital, and also, by the way, cousin to former NFL player Brian Brennan, who played for the Cleveland Browns in the 80s. Poor guy. But first, a word from our sponsor. Farmland investment may seem like a foreign concept, even to those familiar with real estate investing. However, direct investments into farmland present a compelling opportunity. Farmland offers stable returns on investment, low correlation to traditional assets like bonds and equities, and a hedge to inflation. Historically, investors have had limited access to farmland as an investment, since farmland, like commercial real estate, is a relatively illiquid market with high cost to entry. With Farm Together, however, that high barrier to entry no longer exists. Diversify your portfolio and invest in farmland today with Farm Together. Please visit farmtogether.com for more information.
And now our interview with Riley Brennan, general partner and founder at Trucks Venture Capital, a Bay Area-based seed and early stage venture firm that's made bets, among others, on Aurora Labs, Bear Flag Robotics, and Joby Aviation, a flying taxi company that might fly the SPAC route, according to reports out earlier today. We talked yesterday with Brennan about Tesla, Rivian, and yes, SPACs, including one he wasn't involved with as an investor, that of the electric vehicle maker Nikola, whose founder resigned from the company late last year amid fraud allegations. Here's that conversation now. Riley, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about your fund. First, how big is it? How much in assets are you managing? We did our second fund in the last year. So our first fund we opened up in 2015, which was 20 million. And then the new fund, which I can't talk about all the specifics of, but it's safe to say it's much bigger than the first fund. And we just did the fundraising for that in the last year. And we'll have some more news about that in the coming months. Great. Keep me posted, please. Can you talk a little bit about who your LPs are? We were wondering if they were individuals or potentially auto manufacturers trying to get a look at nascent technologies. Yeah, we have a good mix. We have some former execs from the car industry and the tech world, and then a handful of family offices and definitely some large strategic companies. Unfortunately, I can't tell you their names because I've signed documents that prevent me from doing that. But one of the cool things about our little Rolodex of LPs is our founders, when they want to come in and do something in transportation, it's a really, really good, easy doggy door into a lot of those entities, whether they're people or businesses. It's a great Rolodex of companies to be able to call on. You said you have some strategic investors and you can't name their names, but can you if they're in the auto space? It's a mix of auto and transportation and communications, those three buckets. And one of the things I love about it is there's probably no part of a vehicle, whether you're talking about a car, truck, a bike, plane that one of our investors couldn't help you with. And that's pretty great. In your first fund, I understand that you were looking to be the first money in, in many of your deals. Is that also going to be the case in this next fund? One of the interesting learnings that I had in the first fund was we were just trying to participate. We were just happy to be at the party. So we were participating in rounds that other people were leading. And our checks in the first fund were anywhere from 100,000 to a few hundred thousand. And the new fund is designed to take advantage of leading rounds. So halfway through our first fund, founders would ask us to lead rounds. Frankly, the fund wasn't big enough to do that quite often, but we did a few of them. And now our new fund is really designed so we can lead seed rounds. And that's what we do. So we'll we'll lead or co-lead. We'll sit on the board. Our fund's grown up a little bit and we have higher ownership targets. So usually we're owning about 10 to 12% of a company at seed. One of those early checks, Riley, went to Cruise, the self-driving car company that GM acquired in 2016 for more than $500 million. I'd seen that it was reported that it had sold for a billion dollars, but that sounds like maybe that was an overestimate. The Cruise investment that my partners, Jeff and Kate, made I can't tell you specifically what the acquisition price was, but it was pretty good. That being said, if you've read the cruise news lately, the valuation of cruise now within General Motors is pretty high. And so I think whether you're talking about cruise or another company that we invest in called Newtonomy, which was acquired by Delphi, which is now essentially a company called Motional. I think a lot about those companies as they were great early exits because they validated the space. But I also think that a lot of the early investors probably wish that they had more ownership of those companies through what's happened in the last three or four years. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have sold, but you look at the valuation of Cruise and Motional today, you put those two entities together, it's more than the valuation of General Motors or maybe Ford Motor Company. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about that specifically. So as you're referencing, huge round, Cruise announced on Monday, $2 billion in outside funding, including from Microsoft, at a valuation of $30 billion. I'm just wondering, is this bubbly to your mind? They still have a very long lead time to making money. Well, it's funny because AV investments, and you've been following this for quite a while, Connie, you know, in 2016 and 17, we started to see a lot of activity. There were so many robo-taxi companies we would see probably one a week that was robo-taxi related in that 2016 time period. And so back then it felt very bubbly at the early stage. Right now, I would agree with you that the public market point of view on some of these companies also feels a little bubbly when it comes to electric vehicles and some of these ideas related to technology and auto. But I do think that the way that a lot of these companies have been built is they look at the opportunity to automate things greater than just robo-taxi. And so I think 2020 in particular was a good insight into how the logistics and the delivery part of automation is probably a near-term horizon than robo-taxi and therefore more valuable. Has a lot of this been driven by Tesla, which is up 700% in the last year and now has a valuation that dwarfs all of the major car <laughs> manufacturers? Yeah, I think one of the things the market appears to want is the simple story stock, right? So a belief in Tesla and the public markets is now highly aligned to, well, this is just the way that transportation is going to be organized. It's going to be a zero emission vehicle that is highly connected and is maybe attached to a consumer in a new way, in a way that the old incumbent companies really can't speak to. You've seen the same thing with a lot of these pure play EV companies, whether it's Fisker doing a SPAC or the way that NEO is received in China and the US, just talking about from the public market perspective. There's this purity of their message and the story stock aspect of what we've seen is really the fascinating bit here. You can argue, I think, successfully that a lot of other companies have more engineering or a greater dealer network, or they have more IP around a particular idea. But when it comes to the public market stuff, it really is about painting the picture in this one specific way that's aligned with the future. And right now, at least, the public markets really don't like that composite liberal arts approach to vehicle manufacturing. They really just want one thing that aligns very well with the future, which they believe is BEVs, battery electric vehicles. That's a really funny descriptor, the liberal arts approach. Well, so one story, obviously, that private investors and companies really like is Rivian's. So I love the look of this product that they're building. But this is also one that I'm really curious to know what you think of it. So it, like Cruz, announced a huge amount of funding this week, $2.65 billion led by funds and accounts advised by T. Rowe Price Associates. It's now raised $8 billion, and it is valued at nearly $30 billion, and yet it hasn't sold, actually, a truck or SUV yet. What do you think of this company? Does it make sense to you that it's already assigned this valuation? Well, I will say that Rivian, from an engineering perspective, is probably one of the companies I respect most out of this new breed of manufacturers. And it would have been very hard to see this 10 years ago when they started because there was a lot of interesting ideas, but it was wrapped around a sports car. And 10 years ago, there were a lot of brand new supercar, sports car entrepreneurs who were trying to start something new. And they were always small batch ideas. Like, and maybe you could get 100 people to buy one, but they weren't really, I think, well aligned with what consumers were buying, which is really increasingly utilities and trucks. So Rivian's approach with the segments they're going after is really smart and really fantastic engineering. So I'm actually quite bullish on Rivian. 
I think that in a year's time, there will probably be two big events in Rivian's life. One is they will deliver the first batch of vehicles, both to Amazon and to some of their early customers. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were public at some point in the next year. Really? They're already talking about going public. This is off the top of the dome, me giving you my point of view on where Rivian's going to be in a year, which is that I think those two big events are probably going to happen. But that's just my own personal speculation. So it'll deliver some vehicles to Amazon first, one of its investors, and then to the public in July. Is that when it's supposed to be delivering its first trucks? I don't know when they're getting delivered, but I think at some point this year. And when you say that it'll go public, would you guess, since you're just guessing, that it's through a traditional IPO or through a SPAC? I don't know, but I will say that we hear from a lot of people who are doing SPACs. And I think that Rivian hasn't done a SPAC today, not because they couldn't do a SPAC, but they didn't really need to. They had tremendous access to capital in the private market and still do. So I bet that Rivian will probably do a traditional IPO. That's my guess. They could also do a SPAC at some point, but I do think that you're going to see probably once they start delivering vehicles and proven that they have are able to manage this Amazon relationship well and are ultimately start selling consumer stuff, I think the public markets are going to be really interested in Rivian. I just think there's really good stuff there. So I know that a lot of the EV companies appear out of thin air and many of them just seem to be put together because they're mercenaries. They believe that the public market is valuing EV manufacturers. Therefore, let's put together an EV company. I do not think that's the case with Rivian. I think that there's actually really good substance there and I'm excited for them. I'm not an investor, by the way. Can you tell me why you're so bullish on its technology? Have you been able to take a test drive or have you seen it up close or what makes you so confident that what they're building is superior? Well, I wouldn't say it's superior to some current offering. I just think that the point of view they have about the segments is really interesting. They are going after, in the US at least, two of the really great growing segments in the business, which is utilities and trucks, where, by the way, there's a lot of margin. And right now, there's nobody specifically going after those segments. Tesla has very successfully built a business around sports car and sedan and small crossovers. And eventually, Cybertruck and all that stuff will come out. But the Rivian approach is much different. It's probably a little bit more on the North Face point of view, the Patagonia point of view on vehicles. I think Tesla is a little bit more slick and just a different design ethos. The Rivian engineering that I speak about is really about the hires they made and a lot of the things they've done for years in advance of getting these vehicles ready. So a lot of amazing talent from big manufacturers, whether they were German or US, and a lot of great vehicle engineering people. And then they made an unusual, but I think really smart investment in an assembly facility that they purchased for relatively cheap years ago that was owned by Mitsubishi. They put together all these components well in advance of anybody really even knowing about them, which I think is just really smart. And it took a while for the Rivian story to get told. They're working on some of the assembly stuff four years ago, five years ago. There's just a lot of good components there. Obviously, there's still a huge amount of risk. And so what I'm saying is not investment advice, but I just think there's a lot of interesting stuff there that is head and shoulders above many of the other EV companies where there's not a lot of substance, to be candid. You mentioned its North Face strategy. I was wondering, what do you think of its 
charging strategy. My colleague over at TechCrunch, Kirsten Kurosek, had reported in December that it's developing a network of charging stations along interstate highways and also at spots like hiking trails to accommodate who it imagines will be its customers. Does that make sense to you? And also, I'm just puzzled by how these companies roll out these charging stations when they don't really know yet what demand will be. Also, if the charging stations will be usable by other electric car companies, I wonder like how many different types of charging stations are we going to have in the world? I think this is going to be another reason why somebody says yes to a Rivian. It's probably not a reason why somebody says no to another brand. It's definitely a nice ingredient in the story they're trying to tell and the way that you can use these vehicles in locations that probably people didn't think about otherwise. I don't think that you'll see that there's a Rivian charger at the entry point of every national park or something like that. They'll probably have access to other charging networks. One of the things that we're seeing in the US is you have some of these dedicated networks like Tesla has, and then you have a lot of this agnostic. You can plug and charge in a lot of other places. And so Rivian will likely take advantage of that. I think an open question would be for Rivian, do they ultimately try to build their own dedicated network that has a lot of coverage? And I don't know about that yet. The other component about Rivian that's maybe unusual and I think is really fascinating is what they do for service and maintenance. One of the things I love doing with startups is looking at the open jobs. And so I saw an open job that Rivian had a few months ago that was around remote diagnostics. And one of the bullet points of the job posting was that this job was really designed so that people didn't have to go back to the dealership. Could you design experiences digitally, almost like the way we think about remote teledoc right now or remote health, where you could potentially talk to somebody live and have them assess the vehicle or maybe walk you through a, a situation where you can fix something that would prevent a lot of the trips to the dealer, which I think in itself is really fascinating because if you consider the traditional dealer and OEM relationship, a lot of the ways that cars are designed is so they're constantly having to go back to the dealer. And so Rivian's point of view on that is really different. And that's one of the other reasons why I think it's one to watch. Given how cheap capital is for some of these EV companies, do you expect traditional car companies like Ford, Toyota, General Motors, VW to spin out their EV operations? That's a great question. Some of the companies that probably need to do this need to do it because the communications around the other part of the business is fairly muddied. The anomaly in all this has been General Motors, which has successfully told the story about what they're doing with their EV business and their EV platform that now is starting to get rewarded in the public markets. I'm not somebody who actively trades public market stocks, so I'm not a great soothsayer for that, but I have been following how the market has received GM's strategy on this. And so they're probably one of the few that have done this effectively recently. Some of the other manufacturers have not been able to tell that story, even though everybody has huge EV investments across the OEM landscape. And so a few of them will probably have to do that. Delphi is a good example. They ended up splitting the business between the new world technologies, which they call Aptive, and then the old stuff, the old powertrain stuff, which stayed as Delphi. It would not surprise me if some of the OEMs went that direction. It seems like there's a huge amount of focus on consumer vehicles, but in venture, I've heard it say you want to zig when others zag. Is there another area of this market that we're missing? For example, is it trucks or industrial vehicles? Is it the software that powers these vehicles? Where do you see the real pockets of opportunity for early stage investment right now? One of the beauties of the transportation world as a place to invest is 
I've always considered a complete market. And that's to say, when some parts of the market are up, others are down and vice versa. So for example, when we started trucks, I remember one of the fund to fund investors that was quite mean to us was like, this is just like a VR fund I talked to last week. These thematic funds never work out. And our perspective was like, well, this is a little bit different than a VR fund. Transportation is measured with a T. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes on when new car sales are down, used car values go up and service and maintenance businesses are worth more. We've always leaned into that aspect of how complicated, but also how opportunistic you could be about transportation. So early stage right now, I think one of the interesting components of EVs in just connecting to what we've been talking about is around things like battery management. If you think about all these vehicles in the future, having really expensive assets related to the battery and the motor that are a significant portion of the value of the vehicle itself, how do you actively manage those batteries live when they're in the fleet is a question that I think all these companies have. And there's going to be some great businesses built there. There's also more to be done around charging itself, which is going to go through an incredible growth period over the next decade. If you look at the number of chargers that are acquired globally over the next nine years, it's about 55 million new chargers. And so all the components of that, I mean, how do you understand what the electricity tariffs are and how do you get the right vendors to build? How do you keep them in uptime? How do you service them? There's a whole lot of ecosystem plays around EVs and talking about our strategy, we love structured automation. So Automated vehicles in highly structured environments have been an area that trucks has invested in a lot. We're probably the leader in automated vehicle investing, just in terms of the number of deals we've done. And so we love things that are highly structured and valuable, like construction and mining and ag and logistics, things like that. So companies like Gaddick and Bear Flag Robotics and Telio, et cetera. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the obstacles of investing in this space? Because I think they must be numerous, such as government regulation, long development cycles, significant capital requirements, dependency on manufacturers. How have you guys been able to navigate these obstacles and what do you make of other more general interest funds that are trying to invest in this space as well? Yeah. Well, some of the big hurdles are real. And I like a lot of the challenges in the space, particularly on policy, because in some segments, there's not a lot of policy. There's not a lot of laws on the books. And so there's been a lot of activity with lawmakers over the last few years trying to figure out how automated vehicles should be considered in these different environments. And I actually think if you're an early stage startup over the last three or four years, it's been an incredible opportunity to have your voice really heard. Whereas if you're selling a, a car, the regulatory environment is so fixed. And unless you're General Motors or Toyota with a big lobbying staff, you're probably not going to have much say in how the vehicle safety codes are written. So a lot of these new technologies have presented these kind of great opportunities, I think. But it, as far as the challenges, a lot of these companies that are doing big things in transportation haven't needed an automaker's permission. If you just think about Uber and Lyft, for example, or maybe Waze or some of these other big companies over the last decade, they really haven't needed the permission of the supply chain to get something done. I think that's another thing to consider here. You can choose to build within an ecosystem or without, but there's so much to be done in making these vehicles safer and cleaner and better that you maybe don't need a car company's permission for. 
One of the things that Alex mentioned was funding these companies over the long term and where that capital comes from. Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, Riley, we're seeing more SPACs. We interviewed last week Steve Jurvetson, who is not unbiased as a longtime board member of Tesla, who's already stepped off of in the fall. He said in a pretty uninhibited way that a lot of these SPACs are just really crappy, like Faraday Future, Lucid Motors. These are companies that seem like they couldn't really raise money elsewhere, where a death store, now they're back potentially. Any thoughts about whether these SPACs make sense and how retail investors separate the good from the bad and what the longer term ramifications could be if some of them do turn out to be terrible investments? Well, I think specifically if Steve Jurvetson said that about Lucid, it's an indication that he hasn't been studying the IP they've been building. Because I don't know about Lucid's capital structure right now, and I know there's rumors about a SPAC for them, but I've been always impressed by when it was called Ativa and now called Lucid, the IP they've been building. So there's a lot of interesting value there around the engineering of the pack and thermal systems that, frankly, if you talk to any engineer, any company, I think Lucid's always been really impressive. If you look at the deep technology of some of these companies, not all, I think there's some real value there. Overall, I think he's probably right that there are a lot of SPACs for companies that don't have real customers. They have pilot customers, and they've made the case that those are actually long-term durable customers, and that won't be the case. One of the things about Silicon Valley that most people don't realize is that it's a great place to raise between two to $200 million. It's probably the best place in the world to do that. After that, you need to start getting on airplanes and start talking to different sources of capital, governments, sovereign wealth funds. Sometimes in this case, in 2020 and 2021, SPACs. Today's SPAC was really yesterday's soft bank round. Think about three years ago when it seemed like, Connie, in your newsletter, every week there was another soft bank round for $500 million or more, right? And I think that's one of the components that we're seeing is particularly in vehicle engineering, it costs so much money to bring these vehicles to market that frankly makes Silicon Valley blush. So if we were to get together and build a new car from scratch, minimum, you're talking about making a 10-figure, 11-figure investment just to get the thing ready. Those are numbers that Silicon Valley actually isn't good at financing. And so a lot of these startups just ran out of money from the traditional Sandhill community. They needed other sources. And if SPACs hadn't happened in 2020 for a lot of these companies, I'm convinced a few of those names would probably have gone under. I'm sure of it. But they found a new way to get really outsized financing. And some of these companies will be able to make it. I'm not sure if I'm willing to tell you which ones, but it's definitely an important piece because the, the Silicon Valley you and I talk about, which is a lot of venture capital through seed, through series D or E, wasn't willing to go along with a lot of these AV companies and they needed a lot more capital. Um. Riley, I wanted to make clear quickly that Steve didn't specify Lucid. He just lumped okay. them all together, in fairness to him. Riley, what did Nikola mean for your business? Um, Nikola is a really interesting company because I actually deeply respect the sponsors that brought Nikola to market, Steve Kursky and the bankers that brought Nikola to market. And I've been disappointed in, obviously, what the CEO, how he kind of laid out the vision for the company and some of the things he did last year. So I was disappointed by what I saw. Did it cast a pall over the investing that you do? No, not at all. In fact, I think for better or worse, probably worse. 
Nikola was an important ingredient in the SPAC realization of 2020, right? It's probably the key example of why people got so interested in SPACs. The analogy I would probably provide is the Nikola SPAC of 2020 is probably the pets.com of this era in the sense that it's so representative of what could go wrong, but it also exposes the idea to a lot of other people who actually then build really meaningful other businesses next to it and around it. And so I don't think there's going to be an after effect of Nikola years from now that people won't want to do commercial trucks or people won't want to build hydrogen related stuff. I think a lot of people have moved on to understand that there are some really big opportunities here. And hopefully with that company in particular was an anomaly contained to just that founder. And hopefully Nikola can build a really big business. I'm not an investor in Nikola, but there's a lot of people that were involved in it that I respect. So I hope it goes well for them. We have a new president, new administration. He made very clear on his first day that climate change is very top of mind. What are you expecting from this new administration? And is that in any way going to impact how you invest or because you're making such mm-hmm. long-term bets, it's not so relevant? No, I think it's very relevant. This decade will be defined by an amazing commitment to zero emission transportation. I know that we've been talking a lot about electric vehicles in this discussion, but I also look at hydrogen to be candid is going to be more of a necessity for things like aviation and probably long haul trucking. I don't necessarily see battery electric vehicles impacting very long haul trucks and long haul aviation. So I think we're going to get into these other zero emission ideas and startups relatively soon. We actually just made our first investment in a company that does hydrogen distribution system. And the founder, he was CTO at United Technologies before that. The company is called Universal Hydrogen. And so we just made our first investment there. It's mostly aviation focused in the beginning. And I think that this will be the decade of a lot of, frankly, the clean tech dreams that people had 15 years ago. The markets and the policy and specifically with the Biden administration, we're going to see some really interesting stuff here. And frankly, out of necessity, right? When a lot of people talked about clean tech 15 years ago, it was still nice to have in a lot of people's mind. And now it's more obvious to everybody that it's a need to have. And there will be really big businesses built on the back of zero emission transportation this decade. Riley, it's such a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Alex. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.